Let's turn in God's word again, please, to the New Testament and to the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And chapter 6, Revelation and chapter 6. I want to read from verse 9 and then into chapter 7. A bit of an extensive reading, but we'll uh, do so anyway. Revelation in chapter 6 and verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed, as they were, should be fulfilled. And I behold, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, and when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every father, and the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Nephtalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this I beheld... And lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worship God, saying, Amen. 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help as we come to consider his word this evening. Lord, we give thanks that we are able to come into thy presence this evening in the name of our Lord Jesus once more. And we come, O Lord, especially at this time to seek thy face, that we might have thy help in considering thy word. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us understanding, Lord, that you would enlighten upon us with that which thou hast spoken in thy word, that we might receive indeed a blessing from having considered thy word this evening, considering all of the things of God and of eternity, Lord, that thou would be glorified in our midst. Thou hast be glorified in our hearts, that we might go from this place joyful, because thou hast revealed thyself afresh to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening I want to consider a short passage of scripture, really, uh, from this, the last book of the Bible. Uh, the passage really is from verse 13 of chapter 7 to the end. It's a book that many shy away from, especially in preaching, uh, as its interpretation requires really intense study, and, use of, and the use of imagery and pictorial language make understanding it a challenge, a challenging task. But having said that, it is also a book of the Bible and, and therefore is a part of divine revelation. And it's not good for us to abandon part of Christ's revelation. Even if we do not de- delve into its depths and into its detail, there are still many things we can take from this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which are of immense importance and of real relevance for our current temporal encouragement. Not only that, but the book itself promises that there is a special blessing for the one who reads it or who hears it. In chapter 1 and verse 3 we read, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So specifically, as I've said, I want to uh, consider the latter half of Revelation and chapter 7. From the beginning of chapter 6, we have seen the Lamb who prevailed to open the seals of the book. And as he does so, we see events unfolding which culminate in the suffering of the church of Christ. We read from verse 9 onwards, and in that verse of chapter 6, We see that John sees the souls of them that were slain or slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Through John's eyes then we see that the church has suffered greatly at the hands of the world and 
of the adversary to the point where they are the slain under the altar. We then hear through John's ears their prayer. O Lord, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood upon them that dwell on the earth? This is the prayer of the church of Christ throughout all ages. As again and again they must suffer for the sake of the gospel. That they are the church of Christ is seen in that they are given robes of white. Uh, these are told to rest until all of the church, their fellow servants, should also be killed. And the word for killed there is an interesting one. In every case, bar one, in the writings of John, not only epistles of John, when he uses this particular Greek word that is translated as killed, apart from one particular case, he is using it in reference to a martyr-like death. The same word is used of Christ. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. The word slain is the same word. It is not the normal word used by John, unless he is referring to this type of death. So those who are to be slain are also to be slain in such a, a light manner under the persecution of the world upon the church. Remember that this book is relevant to all of its readers from the time at it which it was written, throughout time in general, throughout the suffering of the church, throughout history, we see that it is necessary. However, we then find that in the following verses, the prayers of the saints are answered. They say, how long, O God, holy and true, wilt thou not avenge thyself? upon those who take our life we see then the sixth seal opened and the great earthquake and we see six things that occur here an earthquake the darkening of the sun the moon becoming as blood the stars falling to the earth and we see heaven departing as a scroll and we see six kinds of people affected by this judgment that is coming we see the kings of the earth. We see the great men. We see the chief captains. We see the mighty men. We see the slaves. We see the free men. All coming under this fear of the judgment of God that is to come upon them following the prayers of the saints of the church of Christ. And then in chapter 7 we come and see these four angels holding back the four winds. Those who we see uh, in verse 2 are given authority to hurt the earth and the sea and we see the lord then seeking uh, the, the angel coming with a seal in his hand and seeking to uh, stop them from going about that hurt until uh, we have sealed the servants of our god in their foreheads we then see that sealing carried out we don't need to go into too much detail regarding the numbers and, uh, and their significance. But to suffice it to say here that I believe we have represented to us the full and complete church of Christ from those days before he came and those days after he came. The full church from those days throughout history. So the preservation of his people here is seen in the sealing of his church. Then in verse 9 we read, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms, 
in their hands. So here is pictured the church in an image which speaks to the salvation of the Lord. There are numberless multitude. Here is mirrored for us this promise of God to Abraham, how he would as well number the stars uh, as number the multitude that he would be the father of. Here we see it has come to pass. These are not limited to one nation, but to many nations. Every nation, every kindred, every people, every tongue, all represented here before the throne, before the Lamb. They are clothed in white robes, speaking of their righteousness, with palms in their hands, which speaks of the victory and of salvation and of glory that is theirs. All that really to establish here that we are viewing the church in pictorial form. Here is how the Lord represents the church in its final state for us to observe and to understand. So having observed and established that fact, we can consider the passage that I want to consider tonight. And I pray the Lord blesses these thoughts to our hearts as we consider the glorious scene of the church of Christ in her final state. The first thing we consider regarding this scene is the certainty of the scene. Here we have a vision of the future, of things to come. In the very first chapter and first verse, we observe that this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ was given to show his servants those things which must shortly come to pass. And with that in mind, as we, as we look at all these things, we consider something that is a certainty. They are things that will come to pass. This is a certain scene, this scene that we see before us. It is given as a prophecy that will surely come to pass. However, within this scene, there is also another sense in which this, the final state of the Church of Christ is ensured and shown to us to be certain. After the prayers of those slain for the gospel go up for the vindication of Christ's name, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? That is to say, they are not seeking vengeance for their own sakes, but they are seeking vengeance for the sake of the name of the Lord. That is holiness, and that is truth, should be vindicated. And the world, who saw fit to persecute his people, should now be punished uh, that judgment then indeed is seen to be prepared at the beginning of chapter 7. And we see the four angels with the four winds of the earth holding back, prepared to bring judgment on the earth. And yet before they do so, another angel bearing the seal of the living God in verse 2 of chapter 7 cries to those four angels who had authority to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Here we see then this sealing take place, culminating in the multitude that is without number, robed in white, of which the end of this chapter speaks. So the church that we see at the end of this chapter, these are those who are robed in white. These are those who are sealed. What is the significance of the seal, though? What is it that the seal does? And this is what I mean by the certainty of this scene. That the church of Christ is sealed signifies three things, and those things are plain from simply what a seal is intended to do. What is the reason for a seal, then? First of all, a seal prevents tampering. 
You remember when Christ was laid in the tomb after his death upon the cross. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they came to Pontius Pilate to, to give, him, give him guards so they could guard his tomb. The disciples couldn't take them away. But they didn't only put guards there, they also sealed the stone. They sealed the stone. The reason for that was so that it could be proven that the stone had not been touched, had not been rolled away secretly. For example, the disciples hadn't come and bribed the guards and they allowed them to open the tomb and take the body. Pretend that the stone had never been moved because the seal would have been evidence that it had been. The seal prevents tampering then. And likewise, the Lord, in sealing his people in this pictorial form, shows that the people of God cannot be tampered with. They are tamper-proof. Then secondly, a seal also marks ownership. A seal marks ownership. With the words in the Song of Solomon between the lovers there, set me as a seal on thy heart. That is to say, give your heart to me. Mark it as belonging to me. And a seal does such a thing. We might take an example of a piece of handmade pottery made by an artisan of great repute. And he makes a mark upon it to show that it was made by him, that it, is, that it belongs to him, that he created it. It's his workmanship. And thus the people of God are sealed in such a way also. For the Lord marks his ownership of his people. They are bought with a price, as we read earlier. They are not their own. And then thirdly, there are many examples of this in life and in scripture. But take, for example, the command of Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, where the decree was given that the Jews were to be slain on a given day. And the decree was sealed with the seal of the king, showing that it was genuine, that it was not fake, that it was a decree that really and truly came from the king. And so the people of the land are sealed as genuine. They are no fakes. They are not sham imitations of God's people. But they are really and truly the followers of the Lamb. My point here is that the one scene at the end of this chapter, described by the elder from verse 14 to the end, are the ones who must certainly come to this state. They are sealed to be such by this threefold seal. They cannot be tampered with or smashed. They are marked indelibly with the ownership of the Lamb, and they are shown to be genuine by the mark of the Lamb placed upon them. They are sealed as the children of God. This scene then is certain to those who are truly Christ's and belong to the Lamb. Have you received that seal, as it were, the seal of God, that you are really and truly His, and irreversibly so? Does this scene that unfolds before your mind, as it were, before your eyes, contain you? Are you one of the multitude that cannot be numbered? And if so, and if you have truly trusted in the Lamb and follow him, then this is a scene that is certain for you. These men and women arrayed in white robes because they are cleansed from their sin and from their iniquity. Then, secondly, we see concerning the scene, the ultimacy of the scene. And by this I refer to the fact that here is described the final state of believers. Notice the following concerning them as we read again the words of the elder in describing them. I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said to me, 
These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And so the first thing we see considering these believers uh, and how we come to the, consider this as this ultimate and final state of believers is that they have come out of great tribulation. That is to say that the troubles and trials of the church in this world are now over. There is no more tribulation. It must be said that the words of Christ to his disciples are true. In the world he shall have much tribulation. Also in Acts 14 and verse 22 we find that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. As it is the whole church in all ages in view here, so the tribulation spoken of is the tribulation of the church throughout all ages. Exceedingly severe persecutions come from time to time, but never is there a time for the church where there is no tribulation. There is never a time for the church upon this earth where there is no pressure upon them. But yet now they have come finally out of that tribulation. It is ended. And secondly, we see that they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. Here again is a pictorial form of the state of the church when it is finally and completely come to rest. No other tasks or situations intervene. Now finally the church is able to serve the Lord continually without interruption. And thirdly we see also that the hardships of the church and of life are over. Verse 16 says that they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat today of all days that sounds good that there should be no heat coming upon us and we should have the sun no longer lighting upon us during this life as well as the persecutions and the direct pressures of the world upon the church in that spiritual sense there is also a temporal hardship of life upon the Lord's people and the picture painted here is like the image of the children of Israel when they journey through the wilderness of Sinai they were hungry they thirsted the beating of the sun upon their heads, the heat of the scorched earth beneath their feet. Here represented, again in this picture form, the images of the trials of the afflictions of the pains of the weariness of the faithful and the godly life that the saints of God must live. That is, we must live these hardships until we reach the River Jordan like the Israelites and crossing its cold waves In death we come finally into the land of promise. And here is the church in that final state. This is the final state of believers. There is a finality to this scene. An ultimacy to this scene. A sense of relief that the difficulties described throughout the foregoing verses have finally come to an end. And then thirdly, We must consider also the intimacy of this scene. There is most definitely a sense of intimacy here between the church and between the Lamb. 
First of all, we see that they will be in his immediate presence. The elder, in describing them, says that they will serve him day and night in his temple. The word temple means sanctuary. Previously, the verse states that they are before the throne of God. What we have here is the fact that in that final day, and in the church's final state, when we finally come to rest, we will be in the immediate presence of God. The sanctuary is the place where God dwells himself. And the church of Christ throughout all ages will be in that very same place with him. Because of the sacrifice of the Lamb, we will be invited into the very holiest of holies with robes of holy white. We shall then be holy as he is holy. Then secondly, we see that he will dwell with them personally. Notice at the end of verse 15, the words, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Literally, we could render those words, he that sitteth on the throne shall spread his tent upon them, or above them. The word dwell means to tabernacle, that is to pitch a tent, to bring them under his roof then, to spread his tent above them. And there is indeed there a sense of intimacy then. He will not dwell only near us, but among us and bring us in to his own dwelling place. Uh, Perhaps you have during your life and walk with the Lord, if you're Christ this evening, felt sometimes his absence from you and that he has been silent to you and that in your prayers it feels as if you are praying only to the ceiling or to the wall and that there is no sense of God's presence with you. That feeling in the final state will never come upon you again. The one that sits upon the throne will spread his tent over you, will dwell with you, and you with him eternally in this intimate and close personal way. Then thirdly, he will feed them directly. And we saw from verse 17 that he that sits upon the The throne is the Lamb himself, he that is in the midst of the throne. And we see the reason that the multitude that is without number shall hunger no more and thirst no more is because the Lamb himself shall feed them and lead them to living fountains of water. What closeness of contact there is then between the Lord and his people here when they're finally brought out of the world, out of tribulation, out of trouble, and into his presence. He will see fit to personally Feed them. He will see to it personally that they are fed. He will see to it personally that they are watered. They will have no need of anything, for all will be provided and supplied at the hand of the Lord. And indeed then we shall say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lamb himself, who is in the midst of the throne, will feed and lead his people to final and everlasting refreshment of soul. What bliss we'll then know if we are Christ's, and those for whom the Lamb has been slain. And then fourthly, he will comfort them eternally. Finally there at the end of the chapter, we see that God shall wipe away all tears. Tears are associated with bitterness of soul, of sorrow in the heart, of loss, But here it is said that all tears will be wiped from their eyes. That that word 
from is the word out of. It could almost be seen to say that he shall take away all tears out of their eyes. As if the very capacity for tears is removed. Every tear that could ever be shed is gone. Tears no longer serve a purpose. Eternal contentedness, eternal comfort at the hand of God belongs to his people. And they are brought out of all difficulty into his very dwelling place. What a blessing and a comfort that is to our souls. One day what a real and understandable comfort it will be as we engage and experience it ourselves. And then fourthly and lastly this evening, let's consider also the primacy of this scene. By this I mean, of course, as already mentioned, that it is a thing that will most definitely happen. The eternal rest of the people of God is a certainty beyond all doubt. Here is the purpose of the writing of this book. The church throughout all ages must suffer, and yet the truth remains that there is a finality to it all. That one day they shall come out of tribulation and into the presence of God. And that there they shall have every comfort and every contentment that never they had during this earth and time on earth. There's a certainty beyond all doubt. And so we can rest in the knowledge that through much tribulation we will at last enter into the kingdom of God and be at peace evermore. Further than that, what I mean by the primacy here is that this scene as it unfolds before our eyes, as it were, is the ultimate end and purpose of the entire history of this world. In every difficulty, in every temptation, in every persecution of the church, however so severe it might be, in every scheme of the world, in every machination of Satan, This is the ultimate end and purpose of the Lord. Here is the primary reason for the redemptive history of this world. That out of this world, that is out of the mass of fallen, undeserving humanity, the Lord has seen fit to save a people and through fire and through pain and through blood bring them finally to this incomparable and momentous event, final complete and utter salvation. Note what this great multitude from every nation, from every kindred, from every people, from every tongue, declare with a loud voice in verse 10. Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. That is to say, salvation is the Lord's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is the Lamb's. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. We are saved finally and eternally by the very hand of God and by the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And they praise God and they all fall upon their faces and they worship him saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Here indeed is salvation. In the original language, the word salvation bears a definite article. It's not about any regular salvation, any day-to-day salvation, but the salvation. Salvation from the results of the fall of Adam. 
Salvation from the corruption and the, from the pollutedness of this world that is the result of sin. Salvation from our own sin, from our own wickedness, from our own failings. Salvation from this world and its persecution of the church. This salvation, the salvation, belongs to the Lord. Jehovah, Yeshua, the Lord is our salvation. Here is but one thing that I've missed concerning the numberless multitude out of every tongue and nation and kindred and tribe. The first words that the elder speaks of them, these, he says, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here is the primary thing then, the primary thing of the primary thing. This scene is brought about because of the victory of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He that has prevailed to open the book. He who is in the midst of the throne, the lamb, as it had been slain. His blood was shed, and thus a fountain was opened for sin and unbelief. And these are they, this multitude without number, were clothed in white because they have cleansed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Of course, this is a picture. Robes cannot be made white by washing them in blood. But it represents them going to the Lord Jesus Christ for cleansing from sin, from their pollution, from their uncleanness. We might look at this multitude without number in all of their glory, in all of their splendor, in all of their loud shouting and praising, but were it not for the blood of the Lamb, there would be none there at all. Each and every one of that great multitude is there because the Lord Jesus Christ has died. And the blood has been shed and they have cleansed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Here the great plan of redemption comes to its fruition and to its conclusion. All that Adam lost by his disobedience is restored and more so because of the obedience of one, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Have you washed in the blood of the Lamb this evening? Will you be part of that great and mighty multitude, terrible as an army with banners, all praising the Lord and rejoicing in this so great salvation? Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So look to him this evening. You and all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For he is the Lord, and there is none else beside him. There is none other name under heaven except for Jesus Christ, given to men, whereby we must be saved. May the Lord give us an understanding of his word tonight, and a vision of eternity, and salvation, finally, of our souls, through Jesus Christ, for his sake. Amen.